Okay, there's no particular verse to turn to tonight, so if you've got your Bibles, keep them close. Let's take a couple moments. Lord, you are our constant shepherd. We ask that you'll guide us, lead us into springs of living water. And we thank you for this opportunity to be together, to be in fellowship with your son. We thank you in his name. Amen. Better call Paul. Paul is a radical theologian of unconditional grace. And it's a fatal mistake to try to domesticate him. His gospel is all about Jesus, despite what his detractors and his domesticators allege. Now, there's a German scholar that I read while I was in Florida, just a little bit written by him, cited in the very important book by Richard Hayes, The Faith of Jesus Christ. His name is Gerhard Ebeling, E-B-E-L-I-N-G. He wrote a book apparently in around 1963 called Word and Faith. And he was cited in Hayes in a very critical place. And I, I, I think it shows the intelligence of Hayes in presenting Paul's gospel. He said this, the reformers understanding of faith had no effect on the formation of Christology. Not, he says, at least in normal church dogmatics. Hence the difficulty of maintaining the strict interconnection between Christology and the doctrine of justification. The Christology mostly does not lead by any compelling necessity. Speaking of the Reformation doctrine, the Christology mostly does not lead by any compelling necessity to the doctrine of justification. And the latter, in turn, usually leaves it an open question how far Christology is really needed as its ground. What really struck me, and I think in the Holy Spirit, what really struck me is that the Reformation doctrine in turn, quote, leaves it an open question. How far Christology, read that as Christ, how far Christ is really needed as the ground of justification. That's tragic. And that, I think, is a tragic outcome of the Reformation. Some good things came from the Reformation. Some bad things came from the Reformation. It's imperative that we remember that our approach, and this is since Revelation, really, and even John, where it was found in its incipient form, it is imperative that we remember, and I mean as tetelestai phalanx, that our approach to the controversial subject, and it is controversial, and I don't think that it needs to be, of universal salvation, 
is not from the beginning point of soteriology. The reason, in other words, that it is unduly and unnecessarily controversial, meaning causing bones of contention among fellow believers, is because it is approached from a standpoint of soteriology or the study of salvation rather than from the standpoint of Christ and Christology. And I've made this point, but I want to make it again. It's emphatic that we understand this. It's imperative. We have not approached this subject of salvation from a beginning point of soteriology, but from the beginning point of Christology. Much more pressing is the question, not whether all humankind will be saved. That's not the question. The question to be asked is not whether all humankind will be saved. And if you go there first, you're going to have the controversy. You're going to have the shock. You're going to have, as I recently heard, a pastor jump back in horror from someone who suggested properly, really, the gospel of Christ. But much more pressing is the question not whether all humankind will be saved or has been saved, but the question whether Jesus Christ has universally saving significance. It's a looking to Jesus Christ. It is not a question whether all humankind will be saved. The question is, does Jesus Christ have universally saving significance according to the scriptures? And now we're dealing with it according to specifically the gospel as delineated by Paul. Now going in a slightly different direction than I intended, I I was thinking today in Ephesians 4.12 that pastors and teachers, evangelists, prophets and apostles, the whole communicative spectrum of gifts throughout the church age, our job is to aim toward the perfecting of the saints, and that means their perfection in love in 1 John 2.5, so that we can use our freedom, the, the recent liberation of our will, not as a base of operations for the flesh, but by love to serve one another, mutual concern of love. And for the work of ministry, the work of the ministry is the ministry of reconciliation. And so there's an interpretive point there. First of all, the perfecting of the saints is their maturation in love. Secondly, the work of the ministry is the ministry of reconciliation. And that means that we, that you explain the gospel to people or preach it or proclaim it to people as opportunity arises. And it may arise once in your lifetime. At which time it, which would make you want to get it right. Or it may happen as happens in some people in this congregation, past and present every day, the opportunity arises. And I've explained this a little bit Sunday because of the experience I had this past time in Florida. Say that you explain to an unbeliever or to someone who may be on the verge of believing or doesn't know or is skeptical one way or another that Jesus Christ died for him and arose from the dead on the third day 
and that he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God and wherefrom he rules until all his enemies are under his feet. You've told the truth. You've presented the gospel. But at the close of your proclamation of the gospel, you tell that unbeliever that if he believes in Christ or believes the gospel, he can have salvation. He can be justified. The unbeliever is presented with facts that he cannot empirically or rationalistically substantiate. And so he'll either dismiss your gospel out of hand or struggle to believe and fail to be truly assured of all the facts presented. How can someone know that a man was God in the flesh, died and was buried and arose? And even when the spirit's involved, there can be resistance as Brian's messages made very clear. The unbeliever is presented with facts that he cannot substantiate. And so if he sincerely wants to believe, he may try to believe, but never really know if his faith is enough. Or if he believed with the proper intensity or sincerity. He will always lack assurance. But then say, and this is how to present the gospel. Then say that you presented to the same unbeliever. We'll call him an unbeliever, someone who's not quite convinced. You present the truth of the gospel and then explain that justification or salvation does not come to a person or is not had by a person through their faith. Or is it given to them as a reward of their act of faith? but through Jesus Christ's faithfulness. The gospel really is all about God's integrity through Christ's fidelity. And his integrity is his love, his benevolence, his kindness. So you say that your salvation or justification came through Jesus Christ's faithfulness, explaining further that God himself is not a retributive judge but he's altogether benevolent. And I think John saw this necessity when he said, you see, God loved the world so much that he gave his only eternally begotten son. So you go explain further that God is not retributive, but altogether benevolent and that he loved the world so much that he gave his only son not to condemn, He did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, but so that through him the world would be saved. And say that the gospel that you preached with Christ's fidelity at the center elicited faith in that person. The faith that's elicited, the faith that's ignited, it's like God lighting the wick of the candle of the person the spirit the spirit of a man is the candle of the lord when you present the fact that it your salvation is a matter of christ's faithfulness 
that gospel actually elicits or ignites faith in the person that they never have to wonder if it was sincere enough or intense enough or genuine enough because it's a participation in Christ's own faithfulness. And it begins right there. That happened with me, as I mentioned last week. And in explaining that to my uncle Norm, he then said, you could see the faith ignited in him. And I think he already believed the facts of the gospel, but at that moment, faith was kindled. And he said, I'll never be the same. He's 82 years old and he's no nonsense. And I mean, he's very no nonsense. I got a lot of no nonsense this past month. I tried to get sentimental with my mom at the airport and I said, Mom, you're the greatest mom ever. And she said, and you're a son of a gun. I said, well, that's going to make it easy to go home. No tears at the airport here. But Uncle Norm is like that too. But for him to say, I'll never be the same after this, and that a weight was removed from him, a, a weight that he had on him for years, especially since his wife Gail, my Aunt Gail died, was removed. And you could see it. You could see the weight removed. Because you know what it was? A simple explanation of the gospel centering on Christ's faithfulness and not requiring man's faith. And it was that very gospel that elicited his believing. And that's like what Paul said in Galatians 2.16. We, he says, to these Jewish Christian teachers who have a different mission. And that's what Galatians is all about. It's about two missions to the pagans. One, it's an open question about how Christ, how far Christ is involved. Paul's, there's no question. It's all about Christ and his faithfulness. The faith was kindled in him, and he never has to doubt it again. The assurance, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And he mentioned that since Gail died, he has had this great burden on him. And now it also secondarily, I think it assured him that he's going to see Gail again, which he loved dearly. He loved Gail. And you could see they were one of those exemplary couples. And so if you present to the same person, the gospel centered on the fidelity of Christ, you say that the gospel that you preached assured of assured the person of the gospel at that moment. And because faith was elicited by the gospel rightly proclaimed at that moment, the person, whether unbeliever or skeptic or not sure, will have encountered the gospel of God. He will have encountered Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ would have been speaking in you. He will have been Placed into Christ by the Holy Spirit. He will have believed in Jesus Christ. He will have believed into Jesus Christ with a freshly freed volition. Part of the burden removed is that our enslaved will is freed. It's shocking for people to hear that God is not a gentleman like a man is a gentleman he does invade and override our enslaved will how could he free 
us who are enslaved to the flesh and enslaved to sin and enslaved to the law or the not law, but either circumcised or uncircumcised, how could anyone free some slave? If the slave was, if their will was enslaved, would the liberator come in and say, I'm going to liberate you only if you want to, only if you want to be free. No, he says, you're going to be liberated. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is the invasion, the redemptive invasion of God into this evil age to liberate man's will from enslavement to the supernatural players in this drama, the flesh, which is in our lower nature. And we're going to explain that not in Galatians. It isn't the flesh is a supernatural cosmic suprahuman actor that we must be liberated from. And that's what, that's why I'm going to hold off on the question, two questions that are in your hearts, some of your hearts. All right, what about rewards? Someone will say. And that's a natural question to ask. Is there ever a thing that we do that God responds and gives a reward to it? And the answer to that is yes. But at the base of the doctrine of rewards, we have to understand the doctrine of the liberated will. God doesn't recognize things done in the enslaved will of man in an Adamic ontology. But once the will is freed, there is responsibility. There is a be responsible. And so we have to understand that first. The second question is, and perhaps this is the first, really, how are we to live then? And that's a question that also has to be deferred just for a little while because we got to get soteriology straight first. We got to get the gospel squared away first because the spiritual life that is lived, which is we call after the act of being placed into Christ, that spiritual life is lived in the light of the vision of an all saving savior. Otherwise it's not lived. So we have to see the all-saving Savior first. So there's a lot of things I'm going to defer to a later study of maybe an exegesis of Galatians or Romans, which is not part of my goal right now. Now, once this person has been transferred from the tyranny of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God's love, right at the igniting of faith in him, which is at the same time that the Spirit comes to that person, he will have been transferred from the tyranny of darkness, as Colossians 1.13 calls it, into the kingdom of the son of God's love. And he will have become part of an addressable community. That's what you are. That's what a church is. A local church is an addressable community. Israel was the first addressable community. Listen, Israel. Israel is an addressable community. At the base of all the doctrine and all the communication to Israel, it is be attentive, Israel. For the Lord your God is one Lord, and you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. And to that, Jesus added, and love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus 19.18. In fact, that one single word summarizes the entirety of our responsibility as believers because that word summarizes the law in one sentence 
And it has been perfectly fulfilled in the event of the cross. And that's an event. Even as Pastor Brown mentioned, it's a a Christ event. It's not just his dying. It's his passion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his enthronement. And that's the vision. Without a vision, the people perish. And that means without a vision, people stay inside the Adamic ontology. And the flesh goes wild. The flesh is in control. And in Galatians, that explains Galatians 5, 19 to 21, which is not an explanation based on individuals in their future. It's a matter of a community, a community in which the works of the flesh are being manifested does not inherit the kingdom of God, but a community in which Christ is being formed. And that's my goal as a pastor and any pastor's goal Christ being formed in you, Paul said, in you plurally, in you collectively. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and the law has nothing against those things. And those that are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and lusts. So, with the term addressable community, when the person has their faith elicited by the hearing of the report, We're transferred from the tyranny of darkness into the kingdom of God's love. We become part of an addressable community in which Christ can be formed and in which people can be conformed into Christ's image. Now we're in the realm of ecclesiology, the study of the church. With the term addressable community, which is one that Lou Martin used in his excellent commentary, we're beginning to speak of ecclesiology, God's word about his community. And there's an inclusio in Galatians. He calls it the church of God in Galatians 1.13. And it connects with, at the end of the epistle, the Israel of God. The church of God is the Israel of God. It consists of former Jews and former Gentiles, former Jews, former pagans, together where there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female. That's a a shocking doctrine that we have yet to reveal. It's more than what you think. It's more than what I thought. There's neither slave nor free. Part of the reason for that is there's a new slavery. That's why Paul called himself the slave of Christ. It means that he is a willing, willingly obedient servant of Christ because his will has been liberated. A liberated will. God does reward and will in the eschaton reward those who after having their will liberated and sowing to the spirit, they will reap a harvest in connection with their eternal life. There will be a reward, but we have to address some things first and make some things get nailed down first. The addressable community like Tetelestai Phalanx, we're speaking of, A community called the Church of God, also called the Israel of God, consisting of former Jews, former Gentiles, whose faith has been ignited by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in every case, we are delivered over, paradidomi, handed over, handed off to a certain pattern of teaching, a pattern of teaching, tupon didache, 
in Romans 6.17. The community that is the messianic community called the church, the body of Christ in Ephesians 1.22, is a community that's brought about by the baptism of the Spirit and enabled to hear what the Spirit is saying to those addressable communities. What the Spirit is saying. Revelation 2 7, 2 11, 2 17. Remember Revelation 3 1, 6, 13, 22. Remember Revelation. So I think what we have to do to start with is change the slogan, faith alone in Christ alone, to Christ alone. I don't know if some of you remember Mike Bovey. He used to, he was a prophet because he walked around and he'd say, It's all Christ! You go to the pizza shop, we'd go to Indiana and do a message. And we'd go to the pizza shop afterwards, and Mike would just go up and put, get a handful of the Parmesan cheese from the shaker, and then a bunch of hot peppers, and, and eat them. And he says, this is what us guys eat because we live under the bridge. He lived under the bridge for many years. He said, it's all Christ. And so I think that he was prophetic in the sense that we should change that slogan, faith alone, as if it's our faith alone in Christ alone, to just solus Christus, Christ alone. When you're speaking about Christ alone and emphasizing a gospel of his fidelity, God kindles faith in the hearers. It's amazing. But faith isn't kindled if we don't get the gospel right. The emphasize, if we emphasize human faith, humans are left with an obligation they can't really fulfill. And if they think they fulfilled it, they don't know how. It's just like being sorry for your sins. If you're told you have to be sorry for your sins, you never know how deep your sorrow is. You never know if it's intense enough, if it's sincere enough. Was your remorse sincere enough? It's the same with faith. If it's up to your faith then you're never sure about whether the faith is sincere enough, deep enough, real enough, or even if it's even a mustard seed of faith. You don't know. And that's why I'm preparing you for the work of the ministry, that part of the work of the ministry called the ministry of reconciliation, in which the gospel is God's integrity through Christ's fidelity. Listen carefully. Justification is not the grant of a legal standing before a retributively just and wrathful God. Justification, if you want to call it that, and that's not what it means. It means deliverance. It means liberation. It means transformation. It means transfer into participation in Christ. But if you want to use the word justification like the Reformers did, justification is not the grant of a legal standing before a retributively just and wrathful God. It is a deliverance from suprahuman enslaving powers. A deliverance that's initiated and completed by a benevolently loving and saving God through the faithfulness of one Jesus Christ. That's what justification is. I'll say it again. It's a deliverance from superhuman enslaving powers, including the law itself, which is connected with the not law. When G- Let me just tell you something and then explain it later. Not tonight. Later down the road. 
When Galatians 4, 5 says that Jesus Christ came to redeem us from the curse of the law, and also in 3.14, who's us there? Well, once it was interpreted, us Jews, Paul speaking as a Jew. No, us is every human being to redeem us from the curse of the law because the curse of the law, as Paul shows it, is on those who are under the law and on those who are not under the law. They're in the not law. And the curse of the law pertains to all of humanity. And so when it says that he came to redeem us from the curse of the law, it's everybody under the curse of the law, which is all humanity. So he came to redeem all from the curse of the law. That's coming up. That's a, I like to throw hints out. And so our faith is elicited by a message about Christ and his fidelity. Faith is elicited or ignited by the report, and by the report, Paul said, I mean the message about Christ, the faithful one. So, as Romans ten seventeen puts it, faith comes by the report, and the report that elicits faith is the message about Christ. It is by Christ through whose passion many are justified. My righteous servant through his suffering will justify many, says Isaiah 53, 11, And Paul interpreted many as all in Romans 5, 18. Those are important things because that's going to shaping up the whole answer to our question in this series. Are all Paul's apostle, uh, all Paul the Apostles' epistles taken together an apocalypse of Jesus Christ, like Revelation is an apocalypse? You whom I address today are an addressable community. If it's two or three or five or ten or fifty or sixty, You whom I address are an addressable community. You're able to hear what the Spirit is saying. And he is the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Son, because you're part of the community in Christ called the church, which is Christ's body. You are part of the proleptic, eschatological community called the Israel of God. The last time I taught Galatians, I taught it backwards. And I started from the end and went to the beginning and said that the great Gordian knot of that you cut right through to interpret the entire epistle of Galatians is the Israel of God. That Paul is identifying the Israel of God. He is giving an identity to those Galatian churches and their identity is being taken away by certain teachers that whose incursion caused the defection among them. And so as such, part of the Israel of God, you are part of the new creation backing up. And that new creation is the recapitulation of all things in Christ, which is underway now, and you're all caught up in it already. For believing You have the life of the coming age now. Believing, you have the life of the coming age now. Believing, Paul says, 
you have peace and joy in the believing, which is the participation in Christ's faith and faithfulness. People are disturbed about this. They say, did, well, did Jesus Christ have faith? My answer to that is, yes, he did. He had the deep and abiding trust in his father. He believed in the throes of death that the father would save him from the mouth of the lion, did he not? He had resurrection faith. He had faith in his own resurrection. I have Jesus Christ's faith in his own resurrection. And therefore in mine and in yours and in a general resurrection of all. Now this addressable community consists of many churches planted on earth. And that's why there's soil involved in the seed parables because the churches are planted on earth. God's will is to be done on earth as it is in heaven. His kingdom is to come. And that's why the churches are planted on earth through space and time. And we're one of them. That's why Revelation speaks of churches plural and why the Son of Man commands all the individuals in the churches through the angels of those churches to be attentive to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And shocking enough, those who remove themselves from the addressable community are removing themselves from God. Paul is a radical theologian of unconditional grace. I'm beginning where I began again. Paul is a radical theologian of unconditional, presuppositionless grace. It's a fatal mistake to try to domesticate him. The gospel, all about Jesus that he proclaimed, is a radical one. And so, I think Abeling put his finger, if that's how you pronounce the German, E-B-E-L-I-N-G, Gerhard. My grandfather's name was Eberle, E-B-E-R-L-E. It's, we just said Eberle. Never met him. I can't wait to meet him. Eberling put his finger on the main point in his brief citation in Hayes' book. Under the reformer's understanding, there was and there is still a difficulty of maintaining the strict interconnection between Christology and the doctrine of justification. Don't stop listening to me because I'm part German. You know, one of my dear friends is also part German. Ask him about this. Dave Bradshaw. Do you know he's German? Well, he can't be German. Why can't he be German? Why can't Dave be German? I'm German. Why can't Dave be German? Ask Dave. Say, Dave, are you German? And see what he says. So... He's probably wincing if he hears this message. He'll be wincing. Tragically, the doctrine of the reformers leaves an open question how far Christology is really needed as its ground, as if the foundation has to still be laid, which has already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. What's the foundation? Jesus Christ. And those that build on that foundation are the ones that are rewarded and don't experience the burning up of their works because they remained in the Adamic ontology and tried to reconfigure Adam like Agag tried to preserve the best of the sheep 
or Saul rather, tried to preserve the best of the sheep. Better not call Saul. Better call Paul. He preserved, Saul did, the best of the sheep when he was told to slaughter them all. And he also preserved of the Amalekites, Agag, the king, the best. It's it's a picture of us trying to preserve the best part of the Adamic ontology and present that to God as a sacrifice. And Samuel said to Saul, don't you even know that God doesn't want sacrifice, but obedience and obedience is only through a liberated will in which the Adamic ontology is left behind because people don't have this vision. They perish and perish isn't perishing in eternal hell. It's being left to the Adamic ontology to try to reconfigure the old man into something pleasing to God. And that's a fool's errand. And I don't want to know how much of Christianity is dedicated to that errand. In other words, the question that remains after the rest of Reformation is just the same question that remains after the teacher's incursion into Galatia is whether Jesus is really needed to a significant extent in our salvation. On the back of Lou Martin's masterful commentary on Galatians, the writer explains there's someone that wrote what the book is about on the back. And the writer said, why Galatians proved to be a momentous turning point in early Christianity. In this letter, Paul preached the decisive and liberating newness of Christ while avoiding both the distortions of anti-Judaism and his opponent's reduction of Christ. Listen to this phrase. His opponent's reduction of Christ to a mere episode in the epic of Israel's history. And just as the reformers left an open question as to just how significant Christ is as the ground of our salvation, because they said, no, it's our faith. But if one man, as William Law said, if one man depends on his works and another man depends on his own faith, then they're both his faith and the works of the other are alike the same filthy rags. So these teachers believed that Jesus Christ came and that he was the Messiah, but they believed that his whole coming and his whole whole advent was merely an episode in the epic of Israel's history where he sort of confirmed the promises, but then required circumcision. Consider this then. The opponents of Paul in Galatia and in Romans, the leader of these teachers, reduced Christ to a mere episode in the epic of Israel's history. That's what happens ultimately in the so-called doctrine of salvation history. There are three theories. There's the justification by faith theory. There's the salvation history theory. And that one is propounded by a lot of scholars that I respect. But then there's Campbell's participatory, martyrological, eschatological model which I find to be the only one that truly expresses the unconditional grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. So the reformers in the 16th century Europe, so influential on the churches of the West, left 
an open question how far Christology is really needed as the ground or the foundation of justification. Whereas Paul, I called up Paul and he said, there's no foundation but the one that's already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And he's the righteous one, and it's his faithfulness. In fact, Christ and his faithfulness are one. The coming of Christ into the world is the coming of the faithfulness of God into the world to save. He is the faithfulness of God. And the coming of Christ, as Galatians 3 makes very clear, the coming of Christ is the coming of faithfulness, saving faithfulness. The Jewish Christian missionaries who oppose Paul said that the foundation was the cursing and enslaving law and ritual circumcision. Paul said it was Jesus Christ and him crucified. What do we say? I say that we not only call Paul, but I say let's agree with him when he talks. Just as the faithfulness of Christ removes the anxiety from a doctrine of justification by faith, listen to this, Just as the faithfulness of Christ removes the anxiety from a doctrine of justification by faith, so the vision, Proverbs 29, 18, of the universally saving, crucified Jesus, Galatians 3, 1, and the risen and enthroned Messiah takes much of the angst and a lot of the controversy out of the universal salvation question. Sometimes ask a friend this, say, how significant do you think Jesus Christ is to salvation? Don't say, do you think everybody will be saved? Point at Jesus Christ. The core issue is not whether there's a universal salvation. That's not the core issue. You're already dead in the water and you're in a Mexican standoff or a stalemate or whatever you want to call it. The moment that you approach it that way. And you'll have division. We're not about division here. We're about unity. Maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The question is whether Jesus Christ is a universally saving savior. And is he portrayed that way? This is the question that I put to you, Tetelestai Phalanx, a forward marching group in the eschatological apocalyptic war. Don't see this apocalyptic war as something in the future. The apocalyptic war is on now. For the flesh, a supernatural actor, acts and desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. You aren't sufficient against the flesh. The spirit is the victorious opponent, and the spirit is none other than the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the Son into whose hearts Into our hearts he's been sent, making us voice with the voice of the Son of God and call our Father, God the Father, Abba, Father. That's when we cry out, Abba, Father. That's the Son speaking in us, and it's us speaking with the Son's voice. We are in him. So the the question I put to you, Tetelestai Phalanx, And to this generation of Christians and non-Christians. Just how significant is Jesus Christ to the doctrine of justification? 
So just as a writer of Hebrews, let's turn to Hebrews. Why not? Hebrews 8, 1 to 2. I don't think Paul wrote it, but Paul sure did influence the writer of it. Hebrews 8, 1 to 2. What I'm saying is what he's saying. The main point, he says, and this is the Holman Christian Standard Bible of Hebrews 8, 1 to 2. The writer takes time. It's actually a sermon. Hebrews is in the form of a sermon. The writer, therefore, is a pastoral writer. Paul is pastoral from Romans or from Galatians 5, 13 to 24, and even more pastoral from Galatians 5, 25 through 6, 11, through 6, 18, really, pastoral. The pastor's job is to teach the church exactly how to conduct itself in warfare on a daily basis. The writer says, now the main point of what's being said is this. We have the, this kind of high priest who sat down at the right of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister of the sanctuary in the true tabernacle, which the Lord set up and not man. Now, why did I cite that? Because I'm summarizing now for our Better Call Paul series, which is pretty much a pastoral sermon lasting for who knows how many hours. I'm summarizing, and I'll say this. The main point of what is being said in Better Call Paul, as well as in Rev the Book before this, and as well as in incipient form, the fourth gospel, is that we have a great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who having been crucified, raised, elevated, and enthroned at the right hand of the throne of the divine majesty, or God the Father, in the heavens as the Paschal Lamb who has taken away the sin of the world. That's backing up from Better Call Paul through Revelation back to John. The one who is risen and who sits enthroned also ministers actively now in advocacy and intercession for us. And by us, in Romans 8.34, it could be argued and it may well be argued in the future. That means all of humankind. Furthermore, he... Jesus Christ, along with the Father, has sent the Spirit into our hearts. The Spirit sets up permanent residence in us, causing us to cry out, Abba, Father to God, meaning causing us to speak with the voice of the Son. After all, now you are the Son in Galatians 4, 7. So there's a question in believers' hearts. Again, I'll mention it. How we shall live in the light of the main point, this main point. How are we going to live in the light of this main point? Well, first we have to see the light of this main point because our life is lived in the light of this vision of this enthroned Christ, this universally saving Savior. So my answer is be patient. I ask myself, do I need to, con- to add this to the list of the five transcendent precepts? Be patient. I think it is. First things first, before we get to the Christian spiritual life, we're bound to get soteriology right. 
by making it a matter of Christology. The gospel is all about Christ, not about salvation, not all about salvation. It's all about Christ, whose name Jesus means salvation. It's not about universal salvation. But it's about the universally saving significance of a person named Jesus. So before we get to how we shall live, we've been engaged in a fairly weighty task here to get the gospel right. Before getting to how we shall live, which is a matter of pneumatology, the study of the spirit, we have to discover the significance of Christology, which in turn is rooted in Trinitarian theology. Here's my new salute. So in closing, the man most responsible for the radical vision of the gospel is Paul. God's chosen emissary to the pagans. Galatians 2, 8, and 9. Romans eleven thirteen, Romans 1, 5, in fact. Romans 15, 17 to 18. We must be careful not to jump on the bandwagon of his domesticators. Now listen carefully. There are overt enemies of Paul that we would call his detractors. The teachers in Galatia had a whole slanderous line they were giving about Paul. I mean, they slandered him in every possible way. And there are many detractors of Paul in our time, too. It's amazing how many people hate the Apostle Paul. There are overt enemies that we call his detractors. They were all over the place in Paul's time, and they're all over the place in our own time, even in the sphere of fiction. And you've heard me refer to it often. Hannibal the cannibal lector. He hated the apostle Paul. He said he hated women. This he was saying while he was removing the top of a guy's head, you see, with, so that he could eat his brain, which is, you know, what a, you know, great critic of Paul. So to the cannibal, I say, if you snap at one another, each threatening to devour the other, take care that you are not eaten up by one another. Galatians 5, 15. <laughs> Which happens when you remain in the Adamic ontology and then start to provoke one another because you fulfilled circumcision in several aspects of the law, and they didn't. You witnessed and prayed and went here and went there, and they didn't, and so you got this biting and devouring thing going on. So we ought to take care that we're not devoured by Paul's detractors. But beside his detractors, there are just as dangerously his domesticators. Let's make his radical gospel a little more domestic. Let's turn Paul into a lapdog. These domesticators are equally insidious because they, quote, leave as an open question the significance of Jesus Christ to the gospel and to human salvation. So at the close of his apocalyptic epistle to the Galatians, and Galatians is an apocalypse. It starts with a revelation of the Son of God, just like Revelation does. It ends with the new creation, just like Revelation does. And in between, it reveals the persecution of the true 
born of the spirit people by those that are born of the flesh as it was in the time when Ishmael persecuted Isaac. And there are indications that he did more than just mock him. He was actually doing things that could have been lethally fatal to little Isaac. Even as that was in the days when Isaac was persecuted by Ishmael, so it is today. The children of the flesh declare jihad, we might want to say, on the children born of the spirit. This is true of fundamentalism, not only in the Muslim community, but in the so-called Christian community. So, at the close of his apocalyptic epistle to the Galatian churches, Paul wanted to let everybody know that he is a soldier, as we are, in the conflict. This epistle was sent to three churches in order to save them from the clutches of Jewish Christian teachers for whom Jesus Christ was not central. But only an episode in the long epic of Israel's history. But in Paul's case, the man became the message. He bore the scars of the persecution and persecution has one main goal from the divine standpoint. It evidences or evinces the true identity of the persecuted. The 215 million Christians today who are under threat of immediate persecution or enduring it. Don't ever forget them. They are you. Don't forget them. The man became the message. He bore the scars of persecution for the cross of Christ, which only served to evince Paul's identification with Jesus and with his dying and resurrection. It's not just a romantic notion that the people received him in Galatia initially as if he were an angel from God. Paul said, even as if I were Christ Jesus himself. There's more, it's more than just a romantic notion. Christ Jesus was speaking in him. And they deviated. The only time in Galatians that Jesus is mentioned without his messianic title, Christus or Christos, is Galatians 6, 17. Let's look at this. Paul says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. Detractors, and domesticators. That's my comment. For I bear in my own body scars that are the marks of Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit through Paul who is saying that our so great salvation is all about Jesus, whose name means salvation, and whose effect on humanity as a whole and even on creation in toto, is salvific. That's all, folks. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. Constant shepherd. We thank you that you keep shepherding us and that the lamb leads us to springs of water, and tonight he's led us to another in which we can see his all-sufficiency and his saving impact, in which we can actually, yes, feel that impact in our own souls. 
Thank you that you have called us into that addressable community that is able to hear what the spirit of grace is saying. 